It's a pleasure to introduce our next presenter. As I mentioned today, we're having much more applied expert analysis on particular issues. So Louise Bennett's talking about financial services regulation. And now, uh, our good friend Mary Anastasia O'Grady. She's the America's columnist for the Wall Street Journal. Uh, she's fluent in a multitude of languages, including Canadian, English, uh, Spanish, and Portuguese. And she, her column is fantastic. You really, really should read it. Hard-hitting journalism. She raises difficult problems. She sometimes embarrasses uh, the mighty and the great and the foolish in her columns. And now to speak with us on America's Drug War. Mary. Thank you, Tom, for those uh, kind words, some of which were actually true. Uh, so, ladies and gentlemen of Cato University, now that you've finished your lunch and probably would like to take a nap on this muggy summer afternoon, I'm going to give you a lecture about US drug policy to keep you awake. Now, of course, <clears throat> If, we're, if that were the only goal, it wouldn't be hard. All I'd have to do is recite the history of the violence and bloodshed that 100 years of drug prohibition has produced. Or I could just read to you the names of the hundreds of thousands of individuals, men, women, and children, who have been killed, maimed, displaced from their homes, left as orphans, and otherwise damaged by the holy war on drugs. Not only would you not fall asleep here, but if I spent the afternoon graphically depicting to you the results of the cr crusade against drug use that the US wages, you might not sleep tonight either. It really is, as Milton Friedman told me some years before he died, I got in a conversation with him about the war on drugs, and I remember quite clearly that he looked at me and he said, it's a moral outrage. And I think about that over and over again when I confront the problems that the region has kind of just had laid on its doorstep because the US insists on uh, this war on drugs. I'm going to try to give you a short, pithy presentation that leaves plenty of room for questions and discussion. <clears throat> Frankly, I'm a bit tired of the traditional drug policy debate, which involves one side laying out the failure of prohibition, a little bit like what I just did, but there's more to come, and the other side continually arguing that any move toward a legal system with regulation will mean an increase in consumption and an end to life as we know it. It will be, you know, we will turn into a drug culture. And of course, that's a, a um, counterfactual that you can't prove, but that's the, that's the debate, and I've been writing at the journal for almost 20 years, and that debate has not changed very much. So one of the things I want to talk about today is what might be done to make some real progress 
on this problem. And I think first we need to go over some of the basics. Um, obviously, you know, there's this, uh, as, I, as I explained, there is a, a question of the morality of the war on drugs. And I, I always find it a bit ironic that the people who, who believe so uh, uh, deeply on, in the prohibition believe they have the moral high ground. And I think I can show why, why that isn't true. Um, secondly, I want to explain just a little bit, and I'm sorry for those of you who, who understand markets, which is probably most people in this room, why using force, and that is waging a war, uh, cannot work to reduce drug use, and instead creates dangerous, unintended consequences. And by the way, I, I, I would like to point out that this point was made to me at the Wall Street Journal um, by Mexican President Felipe Calderon not long before he left office. Um, and I'll get to in a, in a minute what he told us, but uh, for someone who spent six years waging a drug war in Mexico, uh, I, I have to admit it was quite breathtaking to hear him say what he did. Uh, and finally, I want to explain why the obvious failure why, despite the obvious failure of almost a century of prohibition, it's so hard to get our policy, our politicians to change the policy. And I'm, as I said, I want to offer some suggestions. Uh, let me stipulate at the onset that even though I'm speaking at what I consider to be the libertarian mecca, I'm not in favor of the libertarian solution to the problem, which is to say government has to just get out of our lives and can't tell us what to do with our own bodies. The policy that that implies is that the only solution is the complete legal legalization of all substances in order to reestablish our rights. My own view is that we already live in a welfare state, and the negative consequences of drug use often become a burden for society at large in a welfare state, right? We're all forced in some way to deal with the problem of, for example, addiction. If there are a lot of uh, addicts, uh, there's going to be a cry for some kind of social action to take care of them. So I think that if we're going to change the current policy, we're going to have to convince a wide number of Americans that our better idea is not going to impose new costs on them. And I think that's Probably the, the biggest problem with how we've been trying to fight against this policy, we've never done that very well. We, we, when I say we, I would say people who believe that, you know, in a, in a freer society have never uh, addressed that particular concern. And I think that's where a lot of the resistance and change in the policy comes from. Now, for the record, though I'm not a brain scientist, I don't even play one on TV, or a medical expert, my own view is that drugs are probably not good for human beings, and they're probably downright bad for uh, young people whose brains are still developing. So that puts me on the same side of the argument as a lot of drug warriors. And in my estimation, I think that the conversation we need to have about drugs is not about whether drug use is benign or whether it is a natural right. Uh, as some people believe, but instead about how insane this policy is that we have 
how immoral this policy is, how counterproductive this policy is, how ineffective it is, and why, if we care about justice, and we care about the more vulnerable people in our society, we must change the policy. <clears throat> My message to drug warriors is, OK, let's agree that the existence of mind-altering substances in the world is a negative. OK, let's just agree with that. But being as how they do exist, what is the best policy that does the least harm to the smallest number of people and puts the burden of that harm on the shoulders of the people who decide to use the drugs, instead of putting the burden on people who are not, um, who are not making those decisions. Despite all the talk of evil drug suppliers, no one shoves cocaine up the noses of Americans. That is a voluntary action. And I think we should uh, push very hard at or stress very much the fact that you know, the people who make those decisions have to live with the consequences of that in some way. And that shouldn't, it, rather than our current policy, which puts the burden of trying to keep the drugs away from them on somebody who really is not involved in the transaction at all. Um, to start a serious conversation on this problem, I advocate a giant spreadsheet that shows on one side all the benefits of the current policy, and on the other side, all of the costs. So let's start with the benefits. OK, let's move on to the costs. There really, it's really hard to find any benefits of the current policy. Drugs are readily available, and warring against them has done nothing to reduce their availability. Um, and I think the, the best test of that, we recently had a piece in the Wall Street Journal on the opinion page uh, uh, from a, a drug warrior who claimed that there's less cocaine use in this country and therefore, um, the drug war is working. It, he said that there's also less supply. Uh, but I think the best test of whether um, there's been any effect is uh, price, because that tells you a lot about availability. And uh, recently, I spent some time with um, someone who had been working for the Justice Department in a, I'm sorry, excuse me, for Treasury in a uh, in one of these countries that is a drug trafficking country. And uh, we were having a meeting about something else, but he asked me um, about my speech today, and I told him my point of view, and he said, you are absolutely right. And he said, you know, we've spent all this money, and here's a guy who was working for Treasury in the, in the, in the area of money laundering, you know, trying to go after these guys, but, and, and this conversation took place in Washington. He said, but I can walk 20 minutes from here and get um, enough drugs to, you know, to keep you high all, all night for $20. So that, to me, is the, is the test of whether this prohibition is actually changing the dynamics at all uh, in terms of the availability of drugs. And now the other problem is that the profits for criminals um, uh, have gone up. The more we've waged this war, uh, the more the criminals have had an incentive to get their um, product to market and their rewards have been uh, richer. 
And so it has become more of a problem in our society in, in, instead of less. Um, on the other hand, the costs of the war on drugs are enormous. And that, this gets to Friedman's point about the war being immoral. Uh, with drugs readily available in our schools and communities, we can see that prohibition is not controlling their availability. But at the same time, you have drive-by shootings, game violence in inner-city neighborhoods, young inner-city children, most who are, who are the most vulnerable among us, easily sucked into the business um, when they're, uh, because they're offered you know, uh, ways to make money. When they're arrested, they go to jail. And in jail, they learn how to become real criminals. Um, when they get out, their criminal make record makes it very difficult for them to get work. And um, I think overall, if, you, if you're serious about, about this, this policy, you, you can observe that, that the, the, the war on drugs has been enormously destructive to inner city communities, and it's, it's hit minorities disproportionately. Why is this? <clears throat> the key problem is demand. And again, I apologize, and most of you probably understand how markets work, uh, but uh, there are a lot of people who don't. <laughs> um, rich countries in Europe and the US have high demand for these substances, and users in rich countries are ready to pay. As anyone who understands markets knows, this demand drives supply. Producers are going to get their product to their, their customers. And it is demand and the willingness to pay that explains tunnels under the border coming across Mexico. I don't know if any of you have seen pictures of these tunnels, but they're really quite elaborate. Um, and you also have the stories of these disposable submarines, which cost uh, around a million dollars. And they just use them once and throw them out, but they bring drugs up the, up the coast from Latin America. And so what you see is that suppliers are going to get to their customers. Now, who are these suppliers? Well, under prohibition, they are, by definition, criminals working for criminal enterprises. Just as during alcohol prohibition, the suppliers were the gangsters. And where do they operate? Well, the truth is they operate all over the globe, in rich countries and in poor countries. But in rich countries, where institutions function, more or less, the criminal enterprises encounter some checks. There's only so much they can do. In poor countries, where there, there are very weak institutions, and these countries, by the way, are trying to build institutions, the implications of these rich criminal enterprises are devastating to development. Just devastating. I mean, you, you, you cannot have a country in, uh, make progress and development without any institutions. Douglas, we learned that from Douglas North, the, uh, the economist who won the Nobel Prize for his work on institutions. It's impossible. And this, these criminal enterprises, because they have so much money, they become so powerful, and they can threaten the um, uh, basically the authority of the state, undermine the institutions. Think about what we're saying when we tell uh, Latin America that it has to fight a war against drugs. 
basically what we're saying is, look, we have an insatiable appetite for drugs. And we just can't control ourselves. So you are going to take care of us by keeping the stuff away from us so we don't have to make choices about buying and ingesting narcotics. And let's remember that, you know, I talk about prohibition being about 100 years old because the, the problem with opium and that prohibition began around um, 1914. But the war on drugs was launched by Nixon. And remember why he did it. I mean, basically, drugs had been illegal. And yet, in the 60s, there was increased drug use. And by the early 1970s, basically, the Nixon administration said, you know what? People are not, Americans are not going to stop using drugs unless we stop the supply. And that was the beginning of this idea that the war had to be exported to countries that were suppliers. And primarily, we're talking about um, marijuana, cocaine, and heroin. So what, what has this wrought? Well, as I mentioned, the drugs are run, the, drug, the drugs are, are, are brought to us by criminal enterprises that have a lot of money. Thanks to the transactions they carry out with consumers who have a lot of money. In the 1980s and the 1990s in Colombia, and in the 2000s in Mexico, those criminals challenged the authority of the state. Now, I'll just do a little bit of history here, because if you go back to the 1980s, when I'm sure all of you have heard of Pablo Escobar, uh, was sort of the kingpin of cocaine in Colombia, um, the way that he operated was not just that he was running drugs to the U.S., but again, very weak institutions in Colombia at the time. And the drug dealers would come into towns and whole areas of the country and say, we're in charge here now, you know, and they would call the shots about the taxes, about how basically how the, uh, the, the area that they had taken over was run. And, um, and uh, so, you know, we went out and... Everybody knows that uh, Escobar was captured, and then he was in jail, kind of a nice jail, kind of jail I want to go to if I ever go to jail. And then he got away, and then eventually they took him out. So, but I mean, that really didn't do anything because then the um, uh, the rebel the the rebel group called the FARC, the uh, Revolutionary Army of Colombia. Um, basically took over all this drug trafficking. And why not? I mean, it was a good business. So, you know, when Escobar wasn't there anymore, uh, these guys just moved into the space. And um, so that's, that's sort of how it worked when um, the, Colombian, the Colombian state at the time was very weak, particularly in rural areas. So uh, the U.S. decided, okay, we're going to fix that. And there was Plan Columbia, and, um, and I think the U.S. spent about $3 billion in Colombia helping um, them uh, retrain the army and um, improve their intelligence. And actually, they, they got very good intelligence. Um, and they put the, the FARC back on its heels. I mean, now Colombia is um, uh, quite a bit more pacified. 
and the state basically reasserted itself in throughout the country it, to say that you know it it's basically the one that's uh, uh, running these areas and and not the FARC. So that was a, a a positive development, and a lot of drug warriors will say, "See, we can win the war on drugs." But actually. <laughs> um, we, we ruined the country, and then we kind of helped them get back on their feet. Um, but the status of like drugs coming out of South America hasn't changed very much. Again, I refer you to the street price of, of cocaine. I mean, it's still available. So people say, well, we, we won what we, this shows that we can win. And my response to that is, um, Okay, so your goal was to get rid of drugs. You, you went into Colombia, you destroyed the country, then you kind of helped it, uh, I, I wouldn't say you know, entirely fixed what you broke, but you know, it's more or less in better shape than it was. But the drug situation is still the same. So where's the victory in that? I mean, there, there really is no victory. I think what you see in Colombia is good in the sense that the state was able to re reassert its presence. It is a democratic country. Um, but what you, what you don't have, what you have is that you raise the cost of doing business the way that it had traditionally been. So the business has uh, morphed. It, it's, it's changed its shape. It's cha it, it still supplies drugs, but it's changed. And how has it changed? It has been moved to other countries around the region that also produce drugs. So there's less coming out of Colombia, but I think you could say pretty confidently that on balance, uh, supply is meeting demand in this country, which is reflected by the price. Um, and the other thing is that the actors in Colombia have changed the way they do business. So rather than being those guys that go into the territory and say, we're in charge here now and everybody is going to obey us, they operate more like drug dealers do in this country, which is that, you know, they bring their product from San Antonio to Seattle. Um, they don't tell anybody what to do along the way. They keep their heads down. But, but um, you know, drugs move around this country. And um, you know the idea that uh, that they get to the border and then somehow when they get here that it's not happening is crazy. Um, so um, I think one of the things we have to think about when we think about um, uh, drug policy is what are the costs on our neighbors with this idea of warring on drugs. It, it's, a, it's a very high cost to ask, you know, hundreds of millions of people south of the Rio Grande to live in this kind of environment where criminal enterprises are so powerful because drug users in this country are paying for the product and because of the prohibition, there's more money in it than there should be. I mean, after all, it's just a weed. Um, and, um, and, and, and so their lives are being turned upside down, and we're not even getting, you know, much in the way of results. Uh, the former Mexican attorney general, a guy by the name of Eduardo Medina Mora, who is now the, the Mexican ambassador to the U.S., uh, once told me, and this is quite a few years ago when uh, I think it was the, 
he was Attorney General for Calderon the first three years of the Calderon administration, so that was from uh, 2006 to around 2009. But he told me that um, uh, when Mexico looks at uh, cash moving around Mexico, uh, at the time, he said there's about $17 billion in cash that comes into the country every year. That's in, not in bank accounts, but it's carried into the country. And he told me that the uh, Mexican government could account for about $7 billion in thinking about business travelers, tourists, people who would you know, come with dollars in their pocket and change them and so forth. But there was another $10 billion that they could not account for. And I think the fairly logical conclusion was that was the cash flow going from the U.S. back to Mexico uh, to pay for uh, the goods uh, that the drug uh, users in this country were buying. Now, you have to ask yourself, where is that money going? Because when, when we talk about the effects that, that um, uh, the drug war has on Latin America, it's not just about the guns that they buy and the people that they shoot and, and that sort of thing. But it's also the effect that all of this money has when it goes back into the country. Um, just a, a quick aside, I, w I was once down on the Guatemalan-Mexican border in a place called, um, near the Suchiachi River, in a place called Malacatan. And this is when the drug dealers come up the Central America and they, and they and they're coming up into Mexico, they go up this route. And uh, it's basically on the west coast, uh, west, along the western side of, of Guatemala. And uh, so there's a lot of houses there that are very, they're very big for a place that's really a backwater, very underdeveloped. And of course, all the locals call them narco McMansions. And, um, uh, and I, was, I was telling Muso Ayaudas, the former, the founder of the Marroquin in Guatemala, and I said to him, Muso, you can't believe all the houses, the really nice houses in, in, in Malacatan. And he said to me, you know, Mary, I think the uh, U.S. War on Drugs is the best development project the U.S. has ever had. <laughs> so a lot of the money goes into, to, you know, the economy, I suppose. But a lot of it goes into the pockets of officials and not just the police. You know, bribery is very hard to prove, and one has to be very careful. But I don't think I'm going too far out on a limb to say that there's a lot of drug money that sloshes around in the Colombian state today. And, um, and I, this is really tough on, on Colombians because of the intersection between drugs and FARC terrorism. Um, uh, drug war warriors tell us that all we have to do is just pay judges more and train them and, and pay the police more and train them and then we're going to get, you know, uh, uh, officials that are not subject to bribery. But, you know, that's what gave rise to this very elite police force in Mexico that's, uh, that's um, I, I forget what it's called right now, but it's, it's basically the, 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 the equivalent of a national police force that they decided to build. And they've been at it for about three or four years, put a lot of money into it, trained a lot of guys. And the next thing you know, we had a shootout, a shootout in the Benito Juarez airport. That's the big airport in Mexico City. 
because one of the units was trying to protect a shipment of drugs that was going to Europe. That was extremely discouraging for honest Mexicans who had bought into the idea that prohibition can work, it's just that we haven't tried hard enough. And, um, and I think you have similar uh, questions about the courts in Colombia. Um, I have a, a good friend who has worked, um, has been a member of the military, has worked for the military for a long time in Colombia. And, um, and he told me once, he said, you know, I have a feeling, a really bad feeling based on everything that's going on, is that we are going to win on the battlefield against the FARC, but we are going to lose in the courts. Because one of the things that the FARC does is it accuses um, police and military in courts of law. Um, it's always the most effective and successful generals on the battlefield um, who get accused and um, they get tied up in court and you know in the end they find out that um, the person who accused them is a, a, was lying or, or the general was never even aware. He said but, but that's after their, their military career has been ruined. They're ruined financially because they have to defend themselves. And, um, and, uh, and so it's, it's really too late for them to, and this is a way that the, they call it judicial warfare in Colombia, and it's a way that they've been sort of just beheading the leadership of law enforcement and the military. And um, it makes sense. I mean, if you're the FARC and you're running drugs, the, the military is a problem. They're stronger than you, but this method of going through the courts has been very effective for them. Now, um, I just want to talk a little bit about why this, um, why this can't work from a market perspective. And um, as I mentioned earlier, we had a visit from um, Mexican President Felipe Calderon uh, to the Wall Street Journal just before he was leaving office. And for those of you who don't follow the news on Mexico very much, I think we're up to about at least 60,000 people dead um, in the war on drugs during the, the, during the six years that Calderon was um, president. Now, the government defended that by saying that the, this was just gangsters killing gangsters. But um, in fact, only about 3% of all the murders in Mexico are even solved. So um, if you're not solving the murder, it's very hard to be able to say that, you know, that's how, uh, give the reason for why this person died. And there is a movement in Mexico among family members who, who, who's, who, who have lost loved ones to challenge this assertion that these people were all... Um, we're all uh, members of drug trafficking gangs. And also, you know, there's a, there's a fair number of young people who have died in this war on drugs. So, I mean, I think you have to ask yourself, if a 15-year-old becomes convinced by someone to carry drugs from here to here um, because he's going to get paid some exorbitant amount of money, and he agrees to do it and he's killed, do you put him down in the category of, um, you know, just a gangster who deserved to get blown away? I don't know. That, that's, a, that's a little tough for me to buy into. I, I, uh, anyway, the, the, the numbers are very big, and we don't know how many of the people who died were actually gangsters. Um, it's also made life miserable for people in other ways. I mean, the, the whole cities like Juarez uh, became ghost towns. People lost investments. Uh, jobs, economic decline. Um, 
So Calderon comes to the paper, and uh, at one point during the conversation, he says, well, you know, this idea that the U.S. is going to reduce demand, I mean, we're kind of giving up on that because <laughs> we've been promised that for a long time. I mean, the U.S. is always saying, well, we're going to have another program to reduce demand. But um, he also pointed out something else, which is, I think, so key to the whole idea of, of why the war doesn't work. And that is that when you have inelastic demand, which means that it, demand does not really respond very much to price. Price goes up a little. You still have the same amount of demand. And on top of that, you have very elastic supply, which is that the um, supply does respond to changes in price. The use of force to cut the supply only increases the value of the product. And again, this is Calderon explaining this to me. And therefore, the incentives for the producers to get the product to market also go up. So if you're successful at your war on drugs, you're going to make the criminals richer <laughs> because there's less supply, the price goes up, and the, the users don't really care. They keep going after and, and using the drugs. So this is why, also why traffickers end up you know, running circles around the police. And by the way, I, I, I just want to say that that's true in this country as well as in Latin America. I mean, you know, for all our talk of looking down our noses at, at the Latin Americans because they have, you know, weak police forces and bad governments, um, there's an awful lot of drugs running around this country. And if a, a, a rich country with a lot of resources cannot stop drugs traveling from, you know, San, San Antonio to Seattle, I don't see how we're thinking that, you know, somebody else should do it for us. And by the way, I mean, the fundamental problem there is that we live in a country that has some, still has uh, some respect for civil liberties. And while I would acknowledge that, you know, some of the things that these um, uh, drug investigators do are pretty aggressive, on balance, I mean, there's a line where, so far anyway, they can't cross that. So it makes it very difficult to police um, the transactions. I mean, again, Friedman told me, said, you know, when you have two parties involved in a voluntary transaction, the only way to police that is with informants. Once you have informants, you have corruption. And that's in this country, and that's in Latin America. Obviously, our institutions, as I said before, contain a little bit the audacity of the, of the drug traffickers. It's not the same as the way Escobar behaved in in the 80s in, in Colombia, but the, but the problem is persistent for that reason. <clears throat> now, why is it with all this overwhelming evidence proving that the war on drugs has been a disaster, that it, it continues and it's almost impossible to solve? Well, the first is, is very obvious, and that is that there is an interest among drug warriors to perpetuate it. And um, this is how they make their money. I'm not talking only about government um, employees like the DEA, uh, drug czars, 
and so forth, but also weapon makers, helicopter manufacturers, you know, that are involved in basically defoliating the, um, all of the Andes. The project is underway. We're going to finish it one of these days. Um, <laughs> but these people are all going to have their rice bowls broken if uh, the drug war comes to an end. And uh, so I think that we shouldn't underestimate the, um, the uh, intensity of their struggle to uh, maintain the policy the way it is. But the second uh, problem, and this is the one that I talked about in the very beginning, is that I think many good people in this country are legitimately, um, I should, legitimately or, or uh, honestly concerned about what the um, environment would look like if you had drugs, uh, what I would suggest would be legal but regulated. They're worried that you're going to have um, uh, an, a big increase in consumption. That's the, that's, I think that's the biggest barrier to changing the policy. Um, and until we change the mindset of average Americans who are opposed, um, who are opposed to drug use and show them how we can deal with this social problem, I don't think we're going to make any progress. And in particular, I think a lot of those concerns are, uh, come about with, um, I mentioned before about the, about the brain when it's still in the process of development. Um, there's a lot we don't know about that. Um, I think you know one of the really horrible things about the drug war is that every time the government pushes down on uh, one drug, the producers make something that's more uh, effective. And so you end up getting more and more dangerous products from prohibition. So you know you start with marijuana, and then they push down that, and then you get cocaine, then you get crack cocaine, then you get uh, marijuana with higher and higher levels of, t of the m most uh, powerful ingredient. I think it's called THC. So you know you get this evolution of the product because um, of prohibition. And then when young people use, say, this, this high potency marijuana and their brains are not developed, there is uh, evidence, and again, I would say that we don't really know, but there's evidence to say that that's more dangerous. So these are the kinds of things that I think people are afraid of. Um, I think Gary Becker has m made um, one of the best contributions to this discussion by talking about what is it that concerns people about drugs. And he, and he says that if you ask people um, how they feel about uh, recreational drug use most pe by adults. Most people will say, you know, that's a, that's a private matter, um, and that, that's not something that I, I want to be involved in. But if you talk to them more, what you'll find is what they fear is addiction. Um, they fear addiction not just among their loved ones, but also as a social problem. And what he says is that m most people, um, in fact, I would say the overwhelming amount of drug use in this country is recre recreational drug use. And then you have people, for reasons we don't understand, it has something to do with the individual makeup of the brain, who get uh, addictions. And Becker's point is that 
it would be so much, again, if you take out the spreadsheet and you think about the costs and the benefits, the costs of trying to deal with that number of people who suffer the addiction, and you could link it to, um, I know my libertarian friends won't like this, but some kind of educational programs or some kind of effort to discourage drug use. And I think the, the example of Portugal, um, where they legalized drugs, but they also tried to set up a, uh, some kind of a, uh, a system that would discourage the use of drugs in, in, in society. It's not my favorite choice of the model, but it would reduce the violence and reduce the costs, I think, to innocent people of you know, this idea of, from, that, that come from this idea of prohibition. So I think that when we, when we, when we think about the war on drugs, we need to um, think about, when we think about trying to change the policy, we need to think about um, what is it that the other side is really concerned about. And while I would agree that there are you know, Baptists and bootleggers, and there's also the, uh, th that refers to during Prohibition, people who were totally against alcohol and people who are running alcohol, they both had an interest in keeping the Prohibition. Um, but I think that there's a significant number of people in the middle who are just worried about what this looks like. They're afraid. And a lot of that has been, um, is scaremongering. I, I, don't, I, I, I don't think it's really as scary as people think, but I think we have to address that. Finally, I just, on that note, I want to um, draw your attention, and maybe many of you have already seen this, but uh, in the early part of the 20th century, um, John D. Rockefeller uh, fought very hard for alcohol prohibition. Um, and, and he won. He got, he got his prohibition. He was a temperance advocate. Um, he, was, uh, uh, he was a Protestant. I forget what group it was, but yeah. No, I don't think he was a Baptist, was he? No. He was Scottish by, uh, was he a Baptist? I think he was a Presbyterian. <laughs> Okay, all I know, he was not an Irish Catholic. <laughs> we were never in favor of prohibition. <laughs> and we were right. Okay, so, <laughs> but Rockefeller got his prohibition. And in 1932, he wrote a letter uh, to uh, the president of Columbia University um, and it was published in the New York Times. Now, as I said, he had spent hundreds of thousands of dollars, which is a lot of money back then, lobbying for this constitutional amendment for prohibition on alcohol. In this letter, he said the U.S. had to repeal the prohibition on alcohol. And I find his arguments in the letter frighteningly um, applicable <laughs> to the war on drugs, especially where I come from because I'm not, I mean, I know that there are a lot of people who feel that if I say, you know, drugs are bad, that I'm being judgmental, and I'm sorry that I'm being judgmental, but I just, 
you know, if, it, if they're a young person in my life, I would discourage them from using drugs. Let me put it that way. Um, and John D. Rockefeller had not changed his views about alcohol. He still thought that it was really bad for you, it was bad for society, and so forth. However, he recognized how uh, uh, destructive prohibition was to uh, American society and to the republic. Um, and he asked for, in his letter, he asked for, quote, the support of practical measures for the promotion of genuine temperance. But he insisted, that's close quote, but he insisted that lifting the prohibition was essential if America was to, quote, restore public respect for the law. The problem was that alcohol was illegal, and yet everybody was, well, not everybody, but a lot of people. <laughs> we won't mention groups, uh, we're still drinking. And, um, and so his point was, if you have a law that you say is, you know, this is illegal, and yet you have kind of like a de facto uh, use of alcohol, what you're doing is basically saying the law doesn't matter. And that uh, is very destructive to the rule of law more broadly. Um, so let's see, he wrote, can you hear me? Yeah. I just all of a sudden realized I'm not very close to the microphone. He wrote, um, the eight, when the 18th Amendment was passed, I earnestly hoped, with a host of advocates of temperance, that it would be generally supported by public opinion. That's close quote. And he wrote that he believed teetotaling would eventually take hold. Little did he know he didn't. <laughs> Um, and then he said that this has not been the result, this is a quote, but rather that drinking generally has increased, that the speakeasy has replaced the saloon, not only unit for unit, but probably twofold, if not threefold, that a vast army of lawbreakers has been recruited and financed on a colossal scale that many of our best citizens peaked at what they regarded as an infringement of their private rights have openly and unabashedly disregarded the 18th Amendment. That as an inevitable result, respect for all law has greatly lessened. That crime has, an, has increased to an unprecedented degree. I have slowly, reluctantly come to believe. He noted that any, quote, benefits from the 18th Amendment were, quote, more than outweighed by the evils that had developed and flourished since its adoption. Evils which, unless promptly checked, were likely to lead to conditions unspeakably worse than those which prevailed before. Um, you know, you can't read that letter without thinking about the drug war, especially if you think about how much uh, illegal drug trafficking has financed um, terrorism in places like Afghanistan. And uh, when you see the terrible uh, upheaval in Mexico, a country that is, you know, for all of its faults, I mean, it's really trying to engage with uh, democratic capitalism. I mean, it's opened its borders. It's worked on a lot of uh, 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 um, 
problems that it had really from the corporatism of the pre. So it's privatized a lot of things. It's worked very hard to create institutions and so forth. And then you place this big burden on top of the country, which, by the way, really came about because the drugs used to go from Colombia through the Caribbean, and the US pushed down on the Caribbean. And that's when they started going up the isthmus and up through Mexico. And some people actually say that the reason why the Colombian drug dealers are weaker today than they were back then is because when the drugs started crossing the border at Mexico, the, um, uh, the, the drug dealers in Mexico gained all the leverage. I mean, they had the power right at the price point. Because once you get the drugs over the border, that's when, they, when you really gain the value. And that's when they became more powerful than, the, than, the Colombian, um, than their, their Colombian partners. And um, that in increased. That's why Colombia kind of diminished in terms of its, its threats. I think certainly that, had, that was part of what happened uh, in the late 90s and basically in the, in the first decade in 2000. Um, but you know, today you have so many problems in Mexico that are directly derived from this war on drugs. And um, as I say, I mean, for me, it's, it's, uh, it's tragic. Um, it's a moral outrage. And uh, it is totally ineffective. Uh, so it's time to change the policy. And, I, um, and uh, I'm going to keep writing about it until we do. Thank you. We have, um, we're, oh, <laughs> I thought you were leaving. <laughs> Wait a minute, no one's allowed to leave. No. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead, you made it first. It's question time. Is this thing on? Uh, does that work? How do you turn it on? Oh, it's on, it's on. Testing, testing, one, two, three. Okay. <laughs> Lance, are you like outside Long Beach? I like to first say I'm Mexican, so this is near and dear to my heart. And then, like, it, it truly is. And then another thing, this, I feel like this... Sorry, I'm sorry, I'm having a little trouble so, here. Uh, um, I'm Mexican, so this issue is really dear, near and dear to my heart. And on top of that, I think as libertarians, this is, like, the one issue we could truly connect with the minority groups. If you guys look around the room right now, there's not many minorities here. And this is, like, one of the big things that I feel we could, we could really connect with them. With that being said, we understand the arguments, and we're all for them. Could you get into more detail, like into like the structure that will ideally be in place. And then I'll also say it as a personal case study myself. I live in LA. I like, and then for the most part, marijuana is legal. And the potency of the drug has increased. Like now they have something called wax and people can smoke it out of pens. And it's really like conspicuous. Like I've seen people smoke it like on like trains. So I honestly think that the when people say they're against drugs, um, because it's going to increase the potency and then more people are going to use it. I'll confirm that. It's true. So in an ideal society or an ideal solution, what would be some of the regulations you'll have in place? Well, first of all, I'm shocked to hear that there are drugs in L.A. <laughs> <laughs> but because I thought they just stopped at the Mexican border. Um, <laughs> I, you know... I mean, one of the reasons why I raise that is because I, um, I think that's a key problem, the potency and, and the danger, particularly to young people. But I think, 
and I would defer to people who spend their lives writing about this, this issue and studying it, but I would think that um, one of the things we have to come together on is, okay, let's say, for example, we agree that um, drugs are bad for children, that if you're uh, 15 and you start smoking some of this stuff you were describing, uh, with very high THC, or I've never heard of this it, wax. There, there's wax pens. So pretty much what you could do is... So. <laughs> 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 okay, okay, thank you. Thank you. We'll, we'll see you in the lunchroom later. Um, I don't know. It's exactly the same. I don't know. Has she, oh, hash? Yeah. Yeah, it's essentially hash. But then they have, it's a wax version of hash. Well, I think, okay. But. Let me, there are a lot of, okay, let me just say this. I, I think what we, what we have to agree on is that there are many things that our children can do that would be bad for them. You know, there, there, there are all kinds of hazards for them and, and, uh, and bad judgment that they could make and so forth. So it's, it's not limited to drugs. And one of the reasons I believe that this is a conservative, a social conservative point of view is that social conservatives believe that the nanny state does not teach our children, that the state is not going to teach us morality, that we teach our own children morality, we teach our own children right from wrong and to make good judgments and so forth. So part of the problem with um, prohibition is that parents basically say, well, kid can't get it because it's illegal, you know? And the, I think the, the availability of drugs is forcing parents to become more involved in talking to their children about drugs. I think that's actually been a change in the last 10 or 20 years, that people are more involved. Um, but, you know, because you, basically what you're presenting to me is you're saying, hey, there's something really dangerous out there and people could use it. What are you going to do about that? Probably not very much, frankly. You know, I, I mean, and I think we have to be honest about that. Um, but think of it, the children. <laughs> excuse me? Think of the children. Yes. So that's the argument I get, like. Yeah. But, well, okay, here's another response to that, which is that um, kind of along the lines of what I said to you about drugs in L.A. I mean, you're describing people using drugs under prohibition, Right. So <laughs> how is it working? I mean, uh, even if you think, okay, we have to really do something, the state has to do something to stop drug use, you would have to admit that this plan is not working. <laughs> you know? So, so as I said when I started, I will agree with the drug warriors that I don't want to live in a society where everybody is strung out, okay? Or even that kids are doing drugs or whatever. Okay, let's agree that we want to uh, live in a place where, like, maybe we're not surrounded by drugs all the time. Okay, but what's the best way to do that? I think my point is that prohibition is not getting us there. And by the way, I mean, if a lot of these people who believe in prohibition are not, I mean, if you really want prohibition, then you should give everybody, you know, the pee cup every day, everywhere they go. And we're not going to live in a society like that where we test people for drugs, you know, when you walk into the office and when you, every, you know, you go to the football game. But that's the kind of environment you would have to live in if you want prohibition to work. So I think we have to talk about what's a better way. And I think a better way, look, Nobody comes up to my nephew on the playground and opens his raincoat and say, you want to buy a bottle of B.O.? I mean, it's sold in a liquor store. If you sell it you, to children, you lose your license. 
it's not perfect. Kids get alcohol, but it's an environment. I mean, alcohol is very dangerous for children, but it's a regulated environment where it's pretty much kept away from them. There's a statistic that says that more kids have uh, tried marijuana than have tried beer, because if you sell beer to a minor, you lose your license. And the, you don't have that kind of pressure. So I, I think that you can make a case that under a regulated environment, children would be less vulnerable. And just one last point on that. I'm not going to take this long to answer every question. But you know, think of a kid in a minority neighborhood, a, a, a poor child, who is, who is told, carry the drugs over there, or you know, to, given some kind of a minor job in the gang and is going to get money for that. I mean, how enticing is that for a kid who comes from very difficult circumstances and maybe not a two-parent family? That's terrible. And you wouldn't have that kind of, um, that kind of uh, business that this kid could be sucked into, because once he gets into the business, then he's going to get into drugs and all of that. That is going to be gone if you're in, an, in a regulated environment where there are people who are allowed to do it. I'm not suggesting that we sell it next to the potato chips in 7-Eleven. You know, I, I think you can have a regulated environment, and it would be, again, costs and benefits. Okay. It's not perfect, but I think the costs to innocent people are going to be lower. Thank you. And it's a G pen if you guys want to use it. Hi, my name is Mike. I'm a medical okay. student. Um, I'd like to I'd like to hear your thoughts if you're familiar with uh, supervised injection sites such as uh, Insight in Vancouver. Yeah, I, I don't like them. I mean, I'm not highly familiar with them, but I'll tell you a quick story. I promise I won't take this long to answer every question. But I lived in Vancouver, British Columbia, for two years long time ago. And uh, it was basically a nice place. And uh, I went back there, um, I think it's about four or five years ago now. And um, I was staying at a hotel near Robson Street. I don't know if any of you know Vancouver. But it, Robson Street is a nice kind of street in Vancouver. And because I was coming from New York, I was waking up very early in the morning. And I would go out on Robson Street. And there were these young people, I mean, I would say in their 20s, uh, panhandling. Um, and they looked like perfectly normal kids, but they were quite obviously heroin addicts. Now, Vancouver has an injection site. I'm not sure right now if they still have it or what the status of it is, but I ended up going down there because Robson Street is rather far from where the injection site is. The injection site is in um, another section of the city, a name I can't remember right now. But um, And it was terrible down there. I mean, it was basically all the heroin addicts probably of the Pacific Northwest and all of Canada went to Vancouver. Um, so the, my problem with the injection site idea is that you're basically saying drugs are illegal. OK, so you're not taking any of the profit out of the drug. OK, you're saying drugs are illegal, but you can come here and use them. So it's like the worst of both worlds. I mean, if you want to make them legal, take the profit out and have a doctor do it. And, and, and you have to make it in a bigger area, too. I mean, if beer were only legal within two blocks of New York City, it wouldn't be like some place you wanted to live or shop or something, right? So 
I think the concentration in Vancouver, that, because that was the only place in, I think, in, in uh, Canada at the time that had those. But I don't like this idea of, you know, it's, it's, it's legal when you use it, but not legal when you traffic it. This is my problem with, with Amsterdam, actually, with, with what went on in, in um, the Netherlands, because they did not, they never made trafficking distribution and selling or, you know, or production legal. They only made the use legal. So you still kept all the criminal enterprises were always moving the drugs. I would rather it be the other way around. Here's my real solution, which is never going to sell. But my real solution is perfectly legal to use it. I'm sorry, illegal to use it, but perfectly legal to make it, to carry it, to sell it. So the end result would be that you would have to use it in the confines of your own home or you know, in a private place doing your own thing. You couldn't be out on the street doing it. That would be illegal. That you could go to jail for. But if you did it inside anywhere where you're, you know, and then all the trafficking, legal. And so take all the money out of it. And then for those of us who don't use drugs, well, we, we use the liquid kind, but not the other kind. Um, uh, it, it doesn't, it wouldn't really impact. I mean, I don't want to go to a park and have someone smoking a joint next to me because I, I don't like the smell of it, you know? And that's public good, my air, right? <laughs> None of you libertarians make a fight with me about that. <laughs> yes. Uh, the war on drugs, which is really a war on people, uh, is one of the great tragedies, I think, of contemporary life. You talked about what's going on south of the border, and you've talked about the inner city. But I think the real key in the United States is going to be the middle class and the upper middle class. And although the logical arguments are extraordinarily strong, most of my contemporaries uh, you know, have a son or a spouse or someone who's had a drug problem. Yeah. Very few, although some have had a relative or a close associate who's been thrown into jail, a good person who's not really a criminal thrown yeah. into jail for distribution. So the pain yeah. of the emotional pain of you, when you see somebody swept off the street and stuck in jail for doing, you know, a volunt voluntary exchange transaction has yet to outweigh the pain of seeing the um, the drug abuse problem in a, yeah. in someone who's close to you now, even though the logical argument would say, yeah, but the drug war is not keeping them from being um, an addict or what have you. There's still that as a parent, you got the oh gee, I'm guilty. I've done all this. You have the emotional stuff come in. So I think this, although we need to keep making the logical arguments until the emotional side over here outweighs the emotional side over here. I don't think we have a, a prayer of uh, correcting the situations. Yeah. Well, that's an excellent point. I mean, I, I think in general that that's one of the problems that, um, uh, that classical liberals have is that sometimes we rely so much on facts. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I always say that we have a president who doesn't you know, he doesn't let facts get in the way. I mean, he's very good at tapping into emotions, right, on, on a whole host of things. That's, that's basically how he governs. Um, but on this point about the classes, I just want to say one thing, which is um, I agree with you that 
the, the, the pro, I, you know, I mentioned children in the inner city and so forth, and certainly, I'm, I apologize, I, I really had no intention of trying to say that this is a problem of the underclass, because this is, this is in the middle class and the upper middle class for sure. My only point is that I think that if you're poor and you only have one parent, you live in some of these rough neighborhoods, there's some, you have some level of vulnerability that's, that's higher, I think. And also, um, you know, one of the complaints I make to people who are in favor of incarceration is when a person who has financial resources finds out that their child uh, has this problem, um, you know, they're not, or, or if the child gets arrested, I mean, that parent does everything they can to keep the child out of prison and get them to medical treatment. So, you know, the idea that people should go to jail for that, for, for addiction is crazy. And nobody who, no one individual who saw that happen to one of their loved ones would, you know, would do that. So I just find it's a kind of a, um, hypocrisy, you know, to do it with people who don't, who can't fight back, and we know that people who have the resources don't find themselves in that circumstance. Also, I suppose, on some level, you know, if you are a more well-to-do person and you go to jail for some either trafficking or use, when you get out, there's also a network of people that will support you in some way emotionally and so forth. And a lot of the other people, maybe they don't have that network. So they get out and their network has become criminals that they got to know in jail and then they end up in a life of crime. It's very hard to get out of that once you, you get sucked into it. And it just doesn't seem, again, for what? Why are we doing this? I mean, we're not achieving what, 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 we, what we want. Yes. Hey, uh, I'm Glenn Goodhand, a dentist from South Dakota. Uh, I read some papers, uh, policy papers, a couple months ago, so I'm a little fuzzy on this, but I believe in the Netherlands and in Portugal, it wasn't actually legalized, it was decriminalized. And w this was decriminalization, I think, in the Netherlands of only marijuana, but in Portugal, which is a pretty large-sized state, it was all drugs were decriminalized, including heroin, crack, everything. Um, I know this isn't your quite your area of expertise in terms of uh, geography, but um, what this what this did was um, there were a lot of sequelae. I think that the Portuguese have found to be positive. It's still illegal, but the police do not do what they did to that man's son. They don't put users of small amounts in jail. The police don't spend all their time chasing people around, arresting them for marijuana use, and filling up the prisons with people that really shouldn't be there. Mm -hmm. They also had. A uh, significant decrease in the amount of HIV uh, because the uh, users were allowed to buy needles instead of using them over and over again. So you took away your point about putting basically people that are using marijuana or even heroin, they don't go to jail, and the police don't spend all that money chasing those people around. Which yeah. is, so I wondered what you had to say about decriminalization, which is an intermediate step between what happened to alcohol. It went from legal to or illegal to legal. This is sort of a mid-step that takes yeah. away some of the social stigma from, from uh, drug use. And this is all drugs in Portugal, It's I believe. I know it includes heroin and, uh, and crack, so. Thank you. Um, actually, what they did in Portugal was they did, they, 
They decriminalized it, but they did not depenalize it. So that if you were uh, identified as someone who seemed to have a problem, you could uh, fall under a um, uh, under the surveillance of the state, and then you could be forced to take certain steps regarding rehab and so forth. So I think that's kind of what was interesting about the Portuguese case, partly that they did all drugs, and partly that they didn't go from making it illegal to just saying, do whatever you want. The state said, we're going to try to think of a mechanism here that would dis would help discourage drug use and make people who were involved in drugs get help, but we're not going to put them in jail. And I kind of have mixed feelings about that, because if you remember what they did, they have a commission. And the commission has some creepy Orwellian name to it, like, you know, the the commission to observe people who use funny substances. I don't know what it was, but I just thought, who are these people in this commission that are going to be observing me? Um, well, not me, but you know anybody who who who's, they decide is. Um, but I think what I really admire about what the Portuguese did was they said, look, this isn't working, and we have to try to do something else that is more humane and would have better um, results. The other thing that I didn't like about it, as I said before, I don't like the idea that people who produce and traffic are still criminal. Are, are st it's, you're prohibited from doing it. So by, by definition, those are criminals. And those are criminal enterprises. And they feed, they get involved in other things. I mean, one of the bad things that happened in Latin America is they didn't just stick to drugs, but they expanded their repertoire of criminal activity. So they use the drug money, and then they get into kidnapping and all kinds of extortion. And they get very powerful. I think we have to really figure out a way to get rid of those guys. That, to me, is more important, or at least as important, as dealing with use. Because they're, they're causing so much uh, harm and, and uh, hardship on innocent people and, and, and on development, on the possibility of running like a, 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 the state. Jason Kuznicki, Cato Institute. Uh, you've said that you would stop short of full legalization because of the costs that you infer would uh, accrue to the welfare state with full legalization. It strikes me that this argument is exactly congruent to Mayor Bloomberg's argument for banning large sugary drinks. Uh, it's it's something that would cost water. a great deal to the welfare state, and therefore he's not banning Pepsi. He's banning 64-ounce Pepsis. And that's, you know, he's he's not going to have complete legalization, just a little bit of prohibition, and, and that's because of cost. Now, uh, you might say that that's a frivolous example because the costs maybe here are trivial and the costs of drug prohibition or full legalization are just too great. Uh, let me ask you, what is your price point between the two of them? <laughs> okay. I plead guilty as accused. I'm not really being consistent with my argument, but I'm trying to say that, um, look, we have, we, as a society, I mean, as a, in the public square, we have to come to some kind of a, an agreement about how to deal with this, uh, the existence of mind-altering substances. And what I'm kind of looking around for is something where we can, where people who are on sort of both sides of the argument can agree on, can we find some common ground that will reduce the violence? It's not a pure um, 
you know, privatize the sidewalks kind of solution. I, I accept that. But I, I just don't think you're going to get that. And I think it's a mistake to keep saying, I can do what I want. Let me have my crack. Get out of my life. You're not getting anywhere with that argument. You know, I, I agree that that's, that's your natural right. But we're not going to get there with that. And I, so I'm just trying to, and by the way, I didn't mean full legalization. I'm against full legalization. I, what I'm against is um, something that's not regulated. I think you have to offer something that would be regulated. So you could get your drug, whatever it is, but it would be, I'm sorry, it would be sold on the New Hampshire highway at a rest stop, just like alcohol is. <laughs> You know that, right? That alcohol is sold on the highway in New Hampshire by the state. <laughs> Two sweets. Okay. Okay. Sorry, my answers are so long-winded. Yes, uh, a question. Like, I realize that you're not a medical professional, but I think that would make your answer far more interesting because it seems like when it comes to marijuana, which is the drug that at least in Europe is the most discussed, uh, depending on which doctor you ask, it will be like uh, how dangerous it is will uh, differ. Like some say that it's far less dangerous than alcohol. Some say that it's, uh, that it's more dangerous just in a very different way. Uh, so uh, what, what would you, how, what's your view? How dangerous is like moderate uh, consumption of marijuana? Oh my, that's way above my pay grade. Yes. Okay. The thing is, the thing is that um, what I I know we're in a hurry. I think the answer is I forget. <laughs> um, that's your answer, Tom, not me. Water. Um, the thing is that that. Uh, that this is the beauty of a free society. I mean, look, what do people want when they, when they use mind-altering substances? They want something that makes them feel really good, but they also want to be able to function, right? And I think that the reason why you get these very extreme drugs that do a lot of damage to you, and then they go out of fashion, is people become like, I'm not doing that, because that's not what I want. They want something that will give them some kind of pleasure, and that, but that they can also function. And that's a trial and error process. I mean, you know, whether marijuana is dangerous or not, I think it's pretty clear that smoke is not good for your lungs. Now, if you're eating hash brownies, <laughs> that's different. I, but I think now I'm getting into really dangerous territory. I have no idea. Okay, I have no okay. idea. <laughs> Thank you. Wait, can we, we just have this last question? Take the question. OK, OK. I think, I think I'll try to get very fast. Okay, so uh, illegal drugs is a quite uh, wide category of substances. You haven't really made any distinctions. You know, some sorts of drugs may be more harmful than others to your surroundings, even if you have this view that you can do what you want with your own body. You know, some drugs might make you aggressive and yeah. so on. So, so you can't really say that it's, you know, just your business. But do, would you say that your reasoning applies the same to all drugs, all illegal drugs? My reasoning re is the same because um, if you have demand for something and 
it's going to be delivered, it's going to be delivered by criminal enterprises if it's illegal. However, I'm not, I don't think that tomorrow we should sort of like start selling crack in the 7-Eleven. That's, there's a big wide distance between those two things. I think one idea would be to start with marijuana and, and make producers responsible for what they produce in the same way that if you produce bad gin, somebody's going to sue you. And, you know, that regulated environment will produce something that gives to users uh, a product that is, I, I think, you know, that is safer than something that would expose, ex expose their, them to financial liability in their business. I mean, it's, it's a model that works for lots of other things. And by the way, on the drug issue, it seems like the evidence in this country is that a lot of drug abuse comes from prescription drugs. And so you have people going through the regulated system already and, and using drugs. And I think we should just use that model more uh, as a way to reduce the criminality. Thank you, everybody. That was fun. <laughs>